with a college beer for Pennsylvania Friday afternoon, <coughs> January 7, 1972, the day of the horse voice. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, New Testament part, continuing the study of chapter 10 of Blake Locke's book, the uh, subject of the New Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls. The place that we had reached was question 141, the possible identity of the teacher of righteousness and the wicked priest. <coughs> both, <coughs> both of these prominent characters in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Does Blake Locke think the teacher of righteousness might be Jesus Christ? As some people have said, I'm not just misunderstood. All right, now uh, this um, movement has no direct bearing on Christianity at all. It has a background bearing. This shows you the kind of thinking and kind of conditions that existed among some people in the Holy Land just before the time of Christ. And it is, it is just possible that uh, John the Baptist was connected with this, or at least uh, had, had associated with these people at some time in his life. When it says he was in the desert until the time of his showing unto Israel, this doesn't mean he found him a square mile where nobody lived and sat on a rock out there or something. It could mean that he was living in one of these uh, sort of uh, escapist communities like the Qumran people had. They weren't evidently the only ones. The only one of any importance has been discovered, but there apparently were others of this type of thing. Now, the teacher of righteousness, very uh, probably the founder of this movement, and who he was, nobody knows, but certainly not Jesus Christ. And uh, he is also certainly from a generation to before the time of Jesus, and therefore could not be identified with him. Now, how about the wicked priest? I think we closed on this cheerful note to the question, can a priest be wicked? Well, uh, the identity of the wicked priest is also unproved, but <clears throat> there is a, uh, a pretty strong probability as to who this fellow was. What is the, uh, the let's say, dominant opinion about who the wicked priest was? Yeah. Uh, Alexander Janius. Yeah, Janius. Alexander Janius. A uh, descendant of the Maccabean family. Uh, this, this Maccabean family started out in uh, faith and uh, heroic sacrifice and heroism. And then uh, after successfully fighting for their freedom and winning it against the most terrific uh, optical odds, after that, they began to deteriorate, and the success apparently was no good for people. And uh, they began to uh, <clears throat> deteriorate, and then uh, also to uh, oh, uh, get involved in uh, factional spirit fighting among themselves. Uh, who, Mr. Brown? Who were the two great parties of the Jews at the time of Jesus? Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeah, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, the uh, teachers of the law, they were the professionally righteous crowd, 
in the saddest days of the uh, church machine that had control of the temple and were in cahoots with the Romans and believed that he could make more money by uh, bending with the tide of the times. And I guess maybe he can, I don't know, but anyway, uh, they were uh, greatly influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek thought and, and uh, a great deal of unbelief. Then in addition to these, there was what Blakelock uh, calls the third force. This would be the uh, less prominent, less educated people who uh, were, however, more godly and more concerned and uh, more humble. And I believe he mentioned the possibility among these, the shepherds that uh, visited the manger scene at Bethlehem, uh, some of the men from whom Jesus' disciples were chosen, uh, others who were uh, of the common people, but looking for the kingdom of God and not identified with either of these major parties and these Epsteins of whom the Qumran people were one facet. They're not the whole movement. They're one community of these people. There were different kinds of them. They weren't all exact alike. These would be part of the so-called third force in Palestine. They um, would recoil in absolute horror from the rationalistic unbelief of the Sadducees. And as for the Pharisees, they would consider them to be uh, somewhat hypocritical and not anywhere nearly strict enough about their religion. He realized um, what a terrific thing it would be to join the Qumran community. I wonder, Mr. Harris, do you think you'd feel at home there? Are you uh, religious enough for this? <clears throat> well, uh, you probably uh, are in the habit of counting to ten before you blow your top. But to these people, I had a rule. If anybody got mad and blew his top and exploded in anger, he got half his food for a whole year. Now, just think of the uh, advantages of this from the standpoint of dieting and uh, sort of trimming your weight down. Got a, they only ate twice a day anyhow. You got a half a breakfast and half a dinner for a whole year. I would say this would, <coughs> this was rigidly enforced. This would lead to uh, a good bit of, uh, let's say, um, pausing and caution before you would express yourself frankly, wide-eyed, without inhibitions about somebody else. <laughs> and uh, these people were terrifically strict. The one thing that was prominent in early Christianity and was completely lacking from the Qumran movement was the, what used to be called charity, Christian love. The, the spirit of of compassion on other people and uh, forgiveness of their offenses. Love that, um, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, beareth all things, believeth all things, endureth all things, never faileth. This was, this was conspicuously absent as far as the uh, all records and relics that have come down from Qumran have shown. This was um, um, strictly a um, works type of religion. You deliver the goods and you get paid for it by God. And uh, it's strictly uh, a performance sort of a deal. And the, the element of, um, of compassion and love for other people and of pity on people who were, let's say, had, had fallen victim to temptation and fallen into some sin, which was prominent in the early Christian movement and, of course, in the New Testament. This is uh, absent from the Dead Sea Scrolls and from all the remains that come down from that movement. 
Now, this wicked priest, <clears throat> Alexander Genius, got a Greek name, and he was influenced by Greek philosophy, and he was a Sadducee. You remember these people that didn't believe in the future life, they didn't believe in angels. Any of you know Mr. Della Lawson? He used to be the song leader at the New York Church, he teaches Spanish in night school. Well, she was teaching a women's class over there, and she said, the Sadducees did not believe in the future life or the resurrection. They were sad, you see. <laughs> That's uh, certainly not the <clears throat> derivation of the word. It comes from the name Zadok. Zadok, I somewhat translated into Greek. But uh, it's a pretty good thumbnail description of them. They didn't believe in all the things that give religion hope and comfort. So they were sad, you see. You can remember them by this anyhow. Now, uh, what was, was one very wicked deed this man did among his long record of evil deeds? One thing that shocked even somebody's own party, I guess. But remember what it was he did. Well, uh, did he take kindly to the Pharisees? I heard when then. Dwight Eisenhower won the election over Adlai Stevenson. A woman in Moscow, Russia, said to an American news reporter, Poor Mr. Stevenson, I suppose now he will be shot. Now that's the way they do it in some parts of the world. You lose an election and you also lose your life. Vote for Khrushchev, the life you save may be your own. Alexander Genius had 800 Pharisees crucified all at one time. Can you imagine? Introducing this barbarous mode of death to the Jews. The Jewish system has set forth in the Old Testament law. A person sentenced to death was to be stoned. And sometimes for an especially wicked crime, his dead body could be hung on a tree but as an added disgrace, but only until sunset, and then it had to be taken down. But crucifixion was not originally uh, was unknown in the Jewish uh, nation and system, and introduced from foreign sources. This man, Alexander Janius, I'm not sure he was the first that ever did this, but he gave it a big push. And for this was called the wicked priest. And it's almost certainly the man spoken of, not by name, but by this, this title, the wicked, wicked priest in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, um, let's see, that thing that's down in 41. See, just a minute. I'm some formal resemblances. Could there be a formal resemblance between two religions and yet the real meaning be wide apart? Well, there was a missionary in northern China about 1910 named Timothy Richard. And he found a sect of Buddhists that talked about salvation by faith. Not faith in Christ, however, faith in Buddha. But salvation by faith. You don't have to do any good works. Just put your faith in Buddha and get you there. And he proclaimed that this was a uh, covered or uh, concealed form of Christianity because Christians believe in salvation by faith. These particular Buddhists that he found believe in salvation by faith. Therefore, it was virtually the same thing. 
Now, in answer to that, um, faith is worth nothing unless it is faith with the correct object of faith. A faith that doesn't change a life isn't the real thing. The devils also believe and tremble. Mere faith, and you could have faith in anything, including the devil, or yourself, or anybody. However, there are formal resemblances, you see. This would be a formal resemblance. This sect of Buddhists believe in the importance of faith, and Christians believe in the importance of faith. But there the resemblance stops. It's a different kind of faith that isn't um, really the same thing at all. It's just a formal resemblance, therefore. Now, um, some formal resemblances between uh, some statements found in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls and some things found in the uh, New Testament in the Gospels. Anyone recall on page 140 in the book? I don't care if you look at one of them. See, um, what? Yeah, Mr. Mary. Yeah, uh, this is a phrase, the uh, commonly used phrase. It's found in the, how, how you get eternal life in the Gospel of John would be quite different from how you get it in the writings of Qumran. What you have to do to get it would be different, but the phrase is the same. And another one, and the double verily. In Greek, this is amen, which means truly. Truly, truly, I say unto you, frequently used by Jesus, obviously a way of uh, nailing a thing down, of, of strongly emphasizing a point. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, this same um, formula or manner of saying the thing is found repeatedly in some of the Dead Sea writings. This doesn't mean that they are on a par with the teachings of Jesus, or of course they aren't, but um, as Blakelock says, it means that Jesus spoke the common language of his day, and that uh, people who wanted to emphasize something, they would say it this way. Uh, we would have our way of saying things today, and uh, they had their way, and this was one of them, verily, verily, or amen, amen, I stand to you. Now, 143 is a um, great contrast between <coughs> Christ and the Qumran people about asceticism. Now, first of all, uh, uh, Mr. James, what is asceticism, and are you an ascetic? Now, this does not refer to sinful pleasures, but to many pleasures. Uh, some people have said that uh, tears and seats in church ought to be made as uncomfortable as possible because it's good for your soul. I don't just for one minute believe this, but we used to have seats in the little theater, which is now the magazine on the library. And we had about 150 of them in there. And uh, President Jack Kennedy had a lame back. He had a woman doctor who treated his back. She had an article for his digest with a picture there of the most unhygienic chair that could be constructed. Exactly like what we had in the little theater. People sat on those, and in five minutes, they were just writhing around trying to get comfortable. Do you remember those at all? Or you haven't been in college that long. Impossible. But uh, <laughs> from a previous era. But... Uh, uh, the idea that the the ordinary, not sinful, but simply normal, natural and pleasures and diversions and satisfactions of life are to be avoided for the sake of spiritual benefit. Now, I take fasting, for example. Anybody might say, go through a spiritual crisis and then feel the need of fasting for a period of time. But when somebody puts it down, you're going to be like the uh, man in the parable who said, I fast twice in the week. Going to fast two days out of every seven. 
The Bible doesn't require this. It requires fasting for the Jews only one day in the year on the great day of atonement. And when all the ordinary satisfactions are denied, well, let's say um, sex, marriage, anything to eat that tastes good, uh, to be given up, everything to be as unpleasant as possible, this is asceticism. The idea that by uh, denying yourself the ordinary satisfactions of life, a family and so on, you can lay up merit or greatly improve your spiritual condition and growth. Now, is Christianity rightly understood ascetic? Well, it surely is not. Uh, it is one thing to deny yourself something for a reason. It is another thing then. Well, I can, I can think of some places where uh, a missionary is going to have to face extreme hardship and danger and ought not to have a wife and children along. Uh, for a case like this, he could be like Paul, who for the sake of a cause, decided to remain unmarried, but would be the last person in the world to make this a rule that would be binding on all Christians. See, there's a difference between, let's say, denying yourself something for a cause and, and simply denying yourself something to avoid being comfortable or to avoid being happy. That's a very different idea. Now, Christ was no ascetic. He uh, uh, evidently shared the... He was not married, of course, but he shared the ordinary and social fellowship and so forth of life. Since attended a wedding, he gave his blessing on it. The Cumhine people, on the other hand, were extremely ascetic. This is um, very... Uh, prominent in their movement. And um, even when you got the full menu and hadn't thrown your top and got mad, you still weren't going to get fat on what they fed you. That's for sure. Now, also, with regard to love of your enemies, is it our Christian duty to love our enemies? Well, Miss Sterrett, is it our duty to love our enemies? It's just easy to do. When I read somewhere... Uh, piece of poetry someone wrote. I don't know if you can call it poetry or not, but it's hard to love the rightful and um, see. And hard though it be rightful, but one thing is be rightful and that is loving you. It's hard to love your enemy. Now Jesus commanded this. Does loving your enemies mean that you will always agree to everything they try to do? It might be, under possible circumstances, your duty to resist your enemies, but not to hate them. You should, if you have to shoot your enemy before he shoots you, you should be sorry that these are the circumstances, not glad of it. And if our armed forces inculcate hatred, they are inculcating something that is incompatible with Christian ethics. I'm afraid they have done it a good bit. Now, uh, Jesus quoted a saying that you have heard that it has been said of old times, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Where did, that's obviously a quote from somebody. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Where is that quote from? That's, hmm? Kamarabi. Well, maybe it's not, not in the Bible, though, is it? 
I mean, not in the Old Testament. I don't think this is a quote from the law of Moses. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, Confucius, Chinese page, was asked about um, should we um, love our enemies? And he said, if you love your enemies, what are you going to do for your friends? <laughs> and uh, he, he said, you should treat your friends with love and your enemies with justice. That's what he said. But Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those that persecute you and despitefully use you and so forth. Now, this statement, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, is apparently a quote from a common saying of Jesus' day, which is found in the Dead Sea writings. Uh, they may not have been the first that ever um, dreamed up this particular formula or way of saying it, but this is probably a quote from the Dead Sea writings or from the background from which the Dead Sea writings came. And this, again, illustrates the, um, the lack of love and the um, sort of the haughty, proud, self-righteous spirit that um, characterizes the um, Qumran or Dead Sea movement. Um, they're uh, going to build a ladder and climb to heaven on it and stand on their own feet. I uh, knew a woman who, uh, middle life, married a man. She said to me, he agrees with me about everything in religion except one minor detail. I thought maybe something about baptism, you know, or something like that. I said, what is it? The substitutionary atonement of Christ. He thinks it is degrading to a man to have to depend on someone else for his salvation, that it would be much more noble and manly to deliver the goods and stand on his own feet before God and not just go pleading for forgiveness because of the sacrifice of someone else. Now, that is just another way of saying he wasn't a Christian. This uh, one minor detail is the whole thing that really constitutes what Christianity is. This is the heart and core of Christianity. And this is what is absent from Qumran. It is self-righteous, proud, uh, white, uh, just right down to the very roots of their hair. Now, another thing is <clears throat> about them is allegorizing. What is meant by allegorizing and how did the Qumran people do it? Well, uh, can you think of a book out in the Bible that is really an allegory, Mr. Brown? Yeah, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's intended to be. Now, this is legitimate. This is a legitimate form of literature. This is not allegorizing the Bible. It is taking Christian truth and expressing it in an allegorical way. Here is the Christian. He's going from the city of destruction to the celestial city, and he goes past a place called Vanity Fair, which may or may not have been identifiable with Los Angeles. I don't know. But, um, at any rate, um, uh, everything in there stands for something else. You can work it out in, uh, in uh, elaborate detail. Uh, this fellow gets locked up in a dungeon by giant despair. Then he finds he has a key under his clothes, hanging about his neck with a string that calls a promise. And he's able to unlock the door by by using his key and so forth. This is allegory. And uh, allegorizing is an improper method of interpreting the Bible. The great father of Christian allegorizing was the Alexandrian scholar and church father Origen. And he went really to town and back on this. 
and you can explain almost everything in the Bible away if you want to. I heard a man, an ignorant man once, uh, many years ago, say that uh, they came to a place where two roads met. This is somewhere in the New Testament. Them two roads are justification and sanctification. And uh, the two currents or seas where um, all ships struck, rounded on a rock and started to go to pieces. The two seas met, obviously, two uh, powerful water currents that pinned uh, the ship on there. These also were justification and sanctification. You ought to hear a Chinese preacher go to work on the parable of the prodigal son. That parable, like all Jesus' parables, has one main point only, and that is that God welcomes sinners who repent and return to him. But a Chinese preacher will start out on that, and he has a spiritual meaning for every button down that new road. <laughs> what they stand for, and they're all tied in with the whole system of theological doctrine. Uh, very ingenious, the trouble is, they say things that aren't really there at all. And, and the answer to that is, I just as soon not know so much as to know so much that isn't so. Now, the Qumran people went to work on scripture this way, and some of the most obvious things they took uh, either allegorically or improperly, literally. Uh, it wasn't the Qumran crowd, but another bunch that uh, just before the time of Jesus were expecting a Messiah, and the Bar Kokhba, son of a star, a false Messiah, appeared. And they said to <clears throat> they'd test him out to see if he was the Messiah by seeing if he could judge by smell. Because it says in the prophet, he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor by the hearing of his ears. <laughs> Therefore, when you got left with smell and taste, and so they brought a bottle of ammonia or something to see if he could recognize the smell to prove whether he was the Messiah or not. Now, that's the, you think I'm kidding you to say that, but this is down in this total record. How um, stupidly literal can you get about a thing like that? Obviously, it's a contrast between just and unjust judgment. You shall not judge by the hearing of his ears or the sight of his eyes, a mere superficial reading of the thing, but with righteousness. After thoroughly investigating, you shall judge the true and, and righteous judgment. Well, the Qumran people had this um, uh, almost absurdly superficial literalism about everything in the Old Testament prophets, and it led them to some strange positions that are really uh, oh, almost uh, pitiable and laughable to us today. Now, here's uh, a man named uh, Kevin Smith, I'm 45, <clears throat> and uh, he uh, says that those who compare souls with the New Testament are like comparing a fish and a man because both are wet after coming out of the sea. In other words, they're philosophy. And uh, instead of saying that Christianity sprung from the soil of Qumran, he said the Qumran teaching and uh, those who, who held it were the thorns that sprang up to choke the seed of the gospel. Now, uh, Dr. Blakelock says that's a rather extreme statement. He, he uh, doesn't fully agree with that and says that uh, uh, the Qumran and Essene movement did form a part of the background of Christianity, but not part of the source of Christianity, just part of the background. This was the backdrop of the stage on which early Christianity was acted out. 
Now, there's a quote here from a man named Allegro. John Allegro. You would think with that name he was Italian, but English. And this man is um, a radical, uh, extreme left-wing theologian. He would be in the God is Dead movement uh, if he were in this country, I guess, so this kind of thing, extremely far out. He said that the Dead Sea Scrolls would require complete rethinking of the Christian religion. Obviously nonsense. And he had seen one of these scrolls before other scholars were permitted to see them and uh, made these extreme and wild statements in the published book. And when the, the manuscripts on which he based this radical view of, were published and other scholars had free access to them, he promptly climbed down off that limb. They jumped on him and he took it all back. He didn't get converted, but he admitted that he had uh, made wild and unsupportable statements about the Dead Sea Movement. Now, um, he made this statement that no worthwhile contemporary evidence outside the New Testament that Jesus ever existed. What is Blakely's uh, reaction to that? No worthwhile contemporary evidence outside the New Testament. Well, uh, Mr. Dennison, is the New Testament evidence Now, I heard a man say he could believe in the resurrection of Christ as a Christian, but not as a historian. How's that for double talk? He used to be on our faculty, but isn't anymore. He could believe in the resurrection of Christ as a Christian, but not as a historian, because all the witnesses are Christians, therefore their testimony is biased. Now, double talk, New Testament is certainly valid. You don't have to be neutral between God and the devil to be a witness for early Christianity. Uh, this is not a prophecy man to make. And that certainly, as Blakelock points out, there's vastly more bona fide, valid, historical, documentary evidence for Jesus Christ and his life, career, death, resurrection, and so forth than there is for many other ancient people of whom nobody questions the reality. And he mentions here, I believe, uh, Julius Caesar, Caesar's uh, invasion of the island of Britain, which we know from only a couple, three paragraphes in uh, the uh, oh, uh, Venerable Bede, an uh, Anglo-Saxon church writer of the early centuries, and uh, many others. Homer's Odyssey has only one... Um, dependable manuscript, I believe, that goes back to really ancient times. We have vastly more evidence than this. And uh, so, like uh, says, the Gospels are first-rate evidence. And uh, he says that the myths do not grow up like some of these people claim. Now, are people saying today that the New Testament is full of myths? C.S. Lewis wrote um, Screw tape players and so forth. Had an article in Christianity Today in which he faulted the critics who say that uh, the birth narratives and the resurrection story of Jesus are myths. He said these men don't even know what a myth is. They're just brushing Christianity off by calling it mystical, but they don't know what a myth really is. And that the New Testament records and statements do not have the characteristics of a genuine myth. 
Now, the first thing, <coughs> the, uh, the Gospels were written in the first century. It is possible that the Gospel of John was the last one and written about the turn of the century. There's also a theory today that the Gospel of John was the first of the four to be written. And the Dead Sea Scrolls have contributed to uh, this idea because some of the concepts in the Gospel of John that were said to be late and derived from Greek philosophy have uh, been found in the Dead Sea, Dead sea writings from 50 years before the time of Jesus, thereby uh, sort of spurring uh, that particular argument. But in any case, the middle to the uh, latter part of the first century, this is not long enough for a myth or legend to grow. Now, those of you that have agonized through comparative religions will recall the story of Gautama Buddha. Uh, said that after he was born, three minutes later, he got up and jumped in the air and waved both arms and said, I have arrived. Uh, you may be sure that that was not told during his lifetime. It takes two to three hundred years for a proper like that to get going. Probably that juicy story about George Washington and the cherry tree. You know, I did it with my little hatchet. I can't tell a lie. This probably was also not uh, known in George Washington's day. I doubt the truthfulness of it very much. But real, real legends or myths take a much longer time to grow. A myth goes way back to early times. The, the Japanese Shinto myths about the creation are a primitive people's response to the mysterious and unexplainable in nature. And a legend about these great characters does not appear until all his contemporaries are dead, who could challenge it to see if they were still living. So this notion that people give us the easy brush off and say uh, Christianity is myths and legends, uh, you can say that the Gospels were written too early to be legends, and they do not have the characteristics of a genuine myth. All right, now what happened to the Qumran people? To happen to their community. Blakelock says we can learn almost as much from the archaeological ruins as you can from their writings. Well, it's still there. Mrs. Wilson, are there any people still in there? Uh, in the great Jewish Roman War, you see, it was the well, let's say the insane folly of the Jews to think they could revolt against the Romans and get away with it. But still, they tried it. The only way they could have ever gotten away with that is if God was on their side, and evidently he wasn't. So, um, Jerusalem fell and was destroyed in the year 70. Well, about that time, during that war, evidently the Romans came on this community and burned the building, destroyed everything. Uh, on what ground does Blakelock say that the people probably escaped? Well, could they have hid these scrolls in the cave if they were dead? Obviously not. The fact that the, um, the scrolls had been carefully put in jars and sealed and hid away in caves indicates that the people had enough time to make some last preparations before they uh, got away from their past. And therefore, they presumably uh, got into some other area far away and saved their life. But um, the community was completely destroyed. 